Yo, what's up, everyone? I'm excited about today's guest on the show, and this guy's work has definitely helped me along my own journey. And his name is Brad Jersak. You know, Brad Jersak is the author and teacher based in Abbotsford, British Columbia, and he's on faculty at Westminster Theological Center in the UK, where he teaches New Testament and patristics, and he serves as an adjunct faculty with St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick. And he's also the senior editor of the Christianity Without Religion magazine, which is based here in Pasadena, California. And his books include Can You Hear Me? Her Gates Will Never Be Shut and many other books. But his latest book is called A More Christ-like God, which is what we'll be talking about today. So, Brad, it's good to have you on the show, man. Thanks for having me, Josh. Is it Josh or Joshua? Oh, either one. <laughs> so, I really uh, appreciate this. Thank oh, no. Having Thank me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. You know, I, I discovered you and your work several years ago, you know, while my wife and I were still living in the Philippines, you know. You know we were living in the Philippines, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, um, you know, I just got to say that I really appreciate your scholarship and your tone, you know, to be honest. that That's kind of like a big thing for me. So I really appreciate your tone, the way you, you answer questions and you share, you know, just your willingness to, you know, just encourage people to question their beliefs. And, you know, your book's uh, Stricken by God, and her gates will never be shut were seriously very helpful to me when I first started questioning uh, a certain, you know, a certain understanding of the cross and the whole idea of hell, you know, so, so thank you for that, you know, so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your journey, you know, your story, because, because your stuff's a little bit different in the sense that there aren't too many scholars that I read who talk about tuning into God's voice or listening prayer, you know, which is interesting. So, so what's your story? I'm I'm in my early 50s, so it's a long story, and I'll try to keep it short. I grew up in a in somewhat of a fundamentalist Baptist church with everything that you'd expect from that, mm. including doctrines like the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, heavy heavy on end times and the rapture, yeah. uh, very very evangelistic in the standard like classical four spiritual laws sense, and all of that. <laughs> uh, we were also quite close to the Holy Spirit in terms of uh, God moving, uh, healing, speaking, and so on today. But I have to say that in the midst of that, the people were very good people. They helped me to love the Bible in a way that led me to other conclusions. And also, specifically, my parents kept me open. They, they had more of an experience of a living God than, um, than the doctrine would have allowed for. Hmm. So that takes me to 20 years old. I went off to a conservative Bible college where all of that was reinforced and amplified, actually. Um, and I was planning to be a Bible school teacher and teach Gospels. So I was trained in that uh, bachelor's degree, master's degree. It's that time I married my wife, Eden. But all the doors closed. And at that time, her Mennonite church called me. And uh, I ended up sort of doing Frontline's ministry there with... Uh, youth, young adults, outreach, and so on. And what I noticed about the Mennonites during that decade was how Christ-centered they were. And we, I noticed uh, that we, they preached from the Gospels a lot more. And so whereas my earlier Christian phase was very Pauline in a good sense, yeah. um, we did a lot of stuff in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and they really took that seriously as a way to live. And also we lived about 15 minutes from the Langley Vineyard, and that's when I also ha began to really open up to the possibility that God speaks today, God heals today. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and so, in fact, some of the other Mennonites, they used to call our church the Bethel Vinonite, because <laughs> we did have a bit of that flavor going, at least at the youth and young adult level. Yeah. After 10 years there, um, 
uh, we planted a church. It, uh, Brian West from the Toronto Airport Church, who was the youth pastor when the renewal broke out in 94, oh. uh, he and I got together and we thought, why, why don't we plant a church? And, and we thought it would be sort of this renewal church for like Gen Xers who had grown up or something like that. But what happened was our four pillars became um, people with disabilities who made up thir- uh, 30% of the church. Huh. And then um, uh, children, and then prodigals coming home, mainly addicts, and then the poor. So it was very much about um, ministering on the margins. And that was just such a wonderful experience, uh, seeing Jesus in these folks and experiencing um, mentorship from them, really, in what the kingdom's all about. Yeah. So I led that for 10 years. But I got really fried at the end um, huh. because we just had a horrendous series of tragedies in 2008 where... My life and the church's life really imploded with uh, uh, a lot of death, for one thing. Um, Uh We had a lot of people die that year, whether it was overdoses, cancer, suicide, Mm -hmm. uh, one murder. We had had one of our leaders kind of end up in a lot of trouble, and and that that blew up. It was just, it was the first time in my life where I realized, I don't know if I trust God anymore. So I stepped down, and... Oddly, the leadership team approached my wife, who hadn't planned for this, didn't aspire to it, and they said, we think you're meant to lead us. So for that five years, uh, oh. she just really brought healing to the church. It was profound. A, nice. a strong mother figure that really, really brought us through grief and, and into wholeness. Mm-hmm. While I went back and did my PhD, and that um, coming out of my PhD, then I, 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 I did that in Wales, um, well, from my home in Canada. Yeah. And then uh, by the time I was done that, I, I was offered these two jobs. The, first of all, the Westminster Theological Teaching job, and then also the editor um, thing developed at Pasadena. And so I've been doing that for the last, I don't know, five years or so. Nice. During the, There's one other thing that's really important to overlay on this, is that about 12 years ago, I, I met and came under the spiritual fathering of a of an archbishop, uh, retired archbishop from the East Orthodox Church, uh, Archbishop Lazar Pahalo. He's a monk who lives nearby in a monastery. And what they showed me uh, was such a beautiful, merciful image of God, something I'd not encountered as an evangelical. And mm. ultimately, after 10 years of hanging out with him, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to, I need to go make that my camp. So mm. I still attend yeah. Fresh Wind, the church plant with my wife and family at least once a month, and then when I have time when I'm not traveling, I also I serve as a reader at the Orthodox Monastery for our Sunday services. So oh, you'll nice. see me um, wearing robes a few times. <laughs> I saw that yesterday at your website. <laughs> no, yeah, that's cool. So that's the story. Okay. No, that's good. By the way, you look good, man. I didn't know you were in your 50s. I thought you were like in your 40s. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, would you? I know labels aren't a big deal, but do you kind of label yourself Eastern Orthodox? Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. formally so in this sense too, because I was finding I was teaching Orthodox doctrine, and they and we we did like in the sense of that image of God and the understanding of the cross at Fresh Wind the whole time. Okay, but um, I was getting so many so much so many attacks from evangelicals, and I thought, <laughs> why, why am I why why am I being called a heretic for teaching Orthodox doctrine? <laughs> So eventually I just thought, you know what, there's 350 million Christians who believe this stuff and they, <laughs> they carry this historic faith. I'm going to go make that my harbor 
and I'll still go, I still primarily minister with evangelicals and charismatics and progressives nice. and so on, but it's from the, the orthodox headspace and heart space in a sense. Sure. Okay. No, that's cool. That's cool. You know, so you just came out with a new book, you know, called The More Christ I Got a few months ago, right? So can you tell us a little bit about it and, and why you wrote it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, part of my healing journey after imploding was like trying to understand who God is and could I trust him? What's his nature? What's he like? And one of the things I concluded was that so many people, including Christians and maybe especially Christians, have very toxic images of God. And when you, you know, they would pay lip service that Jesus is the Son of God and all of yeah. that. But then when you start talking about what is God like, many of the things you hear don't sound like Christ. And so hmm. I thought, you know, if we could get a more Christ-like image of God in our hearts, that would really uh, be healthy for us because we tend to we tend to become like the God we worship. Yeah. And so if your God is like really judgmental and like that holiness is about a sort of Puritanism and yeah. he's wrathy and all of these things that you don't actually see so much in the Gospels, uh, sure. you end up becoming like that and you become, mm -hmm. you think you need to be an agent of that kind of God and it gets very ugly and um, hurtful and, and it's, so I felt like if I could come out with a book that just reaffirms that God, God is exactly like Jesus and always has been, and that even our scriptures need to bow before the living God when he came in the flesh. Mm -hmm. that, that would actually, that would, might be helpful for people, especially those yeah. who are so tired of the, the uh, conventional, I won't even call it traditional because it's not, but mm -hmm. the conventional images of God that, that are repulsive and they're walking away. It's like, well, before you walk away, just double check. Yeah, he might be better than you thought, or even he might be exactly like you always dreamed. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, even just talking about the the, the Bible or the scriptures, you know, is there really such a thing though as quote unquote the God of the Bible? You know, because like, you know, it it does seem like we're coming with different versions of God, and we're all reading it from the same the same book. Yeah, you know, and so it's like humans, we we produce a vast pantheon of gods, and so like it makes people really wonder, you know, what is God? you know, really like, you know, because there just seems to be as many versions of God as there are people, even with our within a particular faith, you know, so how do we know who's right? Or how do we know your, your God is right? Or what if you're, so as you're saying, you know, God is like Jesus, what if your Jesus is just a, an upgraded version of yourself? Yeah, that's yeah. a great question. Because, you know, any version of God that you can imagine, you can find Bible verses, <laughs> yeah. or Quran verses, or Bhagavad Gita verses that'll support your own yeah. image of God. And then even with Jesus, you know, yeah. you can have everything from cage fighter Jesus <laughs> to uh, to John Lennon, hippie Jesus, <laughs> yeah. everything in between. And so that I, I think that's a valid question. Um, I think where, where I, I, I start out like this, and and I'm, I'll make this caveat. This is a faith statement, and sure. so I and I think every every image of God must, in the end, be a faith statement because we just simply don't know as yeah. much as we think we know. So the way I come at it is this: I, I make the faith statement that if there is a God, uh, that God is best conceived of as love. Mm. Uh, that love. Love is the energy and the idea that preceded the whole universe and holds the universe together and permeates the universe. So I start there. If there is a God, he's loved. Now, if that, if, if, if that love is like an infinite love, that, that infinite love would be able to communicate that love 
mm. uh, to beings that he's created for love, who he's given the capacity to receive that love. So uh, in Plato's uh, sun analogy, for example, he, he makes the analogy of God as sort of like the sun who is the light and that the mm. light um, sends light rays like, so it'd be like goodness sending love. And then mm. it would also create eyes or hearts that can see and receive that love. All right, so now mm. we're down to a God who is love in my faith statement, but then what, what's love even mean, right? right. It, do we mean like Miley Cyrus love? <laughs> like, you know, something else. And so I find most people find it really reasonable for me to say, when I think of a God who is love and I want to know what that looks like, I find it, I found it helpful to look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. If you want to see what really uh, a pure love, a compassionate love, a self-giving, radically forgiving love looks like, um, consider the person of Jesus as, as love embodied, love incarnate. So we mm-hmm. have this incarnation of, of infinite love in this man. And then the, sort of one of the radical things I do in the book, I think um, it's, it's historic Christianity, but, you know, we could, that could be disputed, but I see I see that the cross, Christ on the cross, is the is that kind of love in clearest focus. If it includes self giving, radical forgiveness, and then solidarity or co suffering with the human condition, and so now we have a God who's come into the world. He's not just distant and silent and far off. That wouldn't be infinite love. Mm. Infinite love actually. Uh, um, engages directly with the human condition in a way that can heal it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, that's kind of where I'm at these days. And once yeah. again, that's a faith statement, but it's one that's uh, making me healthier as a person. I'm experiencing that. I'm seeing it uh, also in places like 12-step recovery. They won't use okay. the name Jesus, yeah. but it's a God who cares, who forgives and doesn't control and who's able to... Um, rescue us from our insanity <laughs> yeah 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 so before we focus so much on on jesus you mm-hmm. know because we'll be getting to that a little bit later you know you know in your like you, you echoed something walter wing said in your book you know that that atheism is a first step toward true worship you know what what exactly does that mean yeah um what walter wink was getting at and i think others as well including me is saying that uh, when you have a toxic image of god and an atheist, well, when someone wakes up to that toxic image of God and then rejects it, they might label themselves an atheist because they've rejected God. But in mm-hmm. fact, they've rejected a false image of God. And uh, I believe that false images of God, another word for that is idols. Yeah. And so Walter Wink's point is when you reject an idol, isn't that an act of repentance and worship? Hmm. And so um, I, I just met a guy this week and and. Uh, he got a chuckle when I observed that he, he was actually an atheist, non-practicing. <laughs> because, <laughs> right, right. Uh, and it, it's sort of like, okay, I believe at, at the end of the day, maybe there's a God, but what if he's not like the one I have heard about? So right. Chris Hitchens in his book, God is Not Good, I think it's called. He says, I'm an atheist, but I'm specifically a Presbyterian atheist. Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're all re- they're, they're rejecting something that's not actually God, and so maybe that's the first step forward right. into a reconstruction phase where you can consider something better. Yeah. So, you know, in your book, you actually talked about, like, different kinds of false images of God. Can you just kind of, uh, in summary, just kind of go through a few of them? 
Sure, I can rattle them off fairly quickly. Um, one kind of God, call it the harsh and punitive judge or the tyrant king or the mighty smiter. So this is yeah. about punishment and violence. Second, you've got one who's more like a deadbeat dad or an absentee landlord, uh, someone who's abandoned us and, and sort of walked away yeah. um, and, and really uh, disappointed us, wasn't there for us. Um, third, you got a kind where it's like you can manipulate them. So it'd be like the doting grandfather or the genie in the lantern. If you can just rub the, uh, the, the lantern the right way, you'll get your three wishes. Or even worse, sort of like a sugar daddy in the sky. And we're the, we're the gold <laughs> digger who's trying to manipulate um, him with false uh, affection to get his inheritance. Yeah. And then uh, in the book, I, I combine them all into sort of this Santa God where you get the legalism of, of Santa who... You know, he's got his list and he's checking it twice and he knows who's naughty and nice. But also, yeah. you go to the mall and you sit on his knee and he's like the doting grandpa then, <laughs> who ends up disappointing you on, on Christmas morning because you didn't get your pony. <laughs> yeah. And all of, all of these, and, and then even um, this idea that he, you don't really ever see him and he only comes once a year and you're sleeping anyway. So this is almost like the second coming, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think little kids like like I was, it's like on Christmas Eve, you're celebrating both Santa coming in the night and you're celebrating Jesus coming in a manger. And it kind of mm -hmm. gets blended into this weird, ugly image. <laughs> right, right. No, Maybe so one more would be just like, I didn't put this in the book, but I was thinking about the, the uh, magic mirror. You know, magic mirror God is when I look in, in the mirror and I project an image of God that's right. just slightly more beautiful than oh, right, me, right. you know, Prozac Brad. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, so, I mean, these are the kind of the images of God that, that you would reject. You would call them false or just say they're idols, like they're probably not even real. So, but if God, according to a lot of Christians, is supposedly the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if you believe that Jesus reveals God, then why does the quote-unquote God of the Bible seem so unchristlike, though? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think um, uh, Peter Enns has put it very well in one phrase, God let us tell the story. And oh, so yeah. you have in the Bible a history of God reaching out to humankind and humankind reaching out to God. Mm -hmm. And there's this effort to kind of get it together. And you have these encounters and glimpses through people's experiences. Now, those people are the ones who get to write the story. So right. all their inferences, all their biases, all their lenses, yeah. the veils they're seeing through um, are, are come out in the text as well. Now, yeah. here's the great, the great thing is, that, well, you don't just take then, and I, so let's say you've got an unchristlike vision of God in some passage where there's a command for genocide, <laughs> and, um, and, and you, you, what you don't do is you don't say, well, okay, obviously this is like their their biases, their prejudices, their um, bigotry, uh, their violence, their nationalism, their militarism. So we'll just toss this scripture out. It's like, oh, no, you need that scripture because mm. it's a revelation of us. Mm. So we hold it up and we go, oh, my goodness, we still do this all the time. Mm. But also within the Bible, then, you get a critique of those images of God and so right within this epic epic saga, you see the um, even the narrators caught up in sort of this these ugly versions of God, but also right within the text in the saga, you've got others prophets who come along and challenge those images, and finally the tension rises to such a pit, pitch that God has to come in person to right. say, okay, I'm going to take 
what what would God look like if we took away all those kind of um, veils and and biases? And so the whole thing forms a package that, and we but we need the whole thing because we've yeah. got a revelation of God, but also of ourselves and how we do horrible things in His name. Yeah. No, I like that. How you you know it's a, it's a revelation of ourselves. You know, and, and so you're talking about how God. There's just way of uh, people perceiving God throughout history, you know, and having unchristlike visions of Him, you know. But why, why did it take so long for God to reveal Himself perfectly, as you say, in His Son? Like, why, why didn't He just send His Son earlier so people could have known Him better, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> One really good, great atheist from the 1800s. I wish I could remember his name because I, I, I read his book in a thrift shop and I didn't buy it. It was a big mistake. <laughs> he said, you know, like, why didn't, why didn't God come as Jesus like after Cain and Abel? Right, know? right. <laughs> and, and, and then he could be the third son of, you know, Adam and he, and he didn't. Yeah. Well, the New, the New Testament does see this as some kind of mystery that requires what it calls a fullness of time. So something had to ripen. And I, I think perhaps um, a culture or what we call it society, uh, um, civilization had to ripen to a point. Um, religion had to, to ripen to a point. And when, when these came to a particular point, also... Um, the people of God had to ripen to a point where they could actually present. It's funny. They finally do present a virgin. Instead of throwing mm -hmm. the virgin in the volcano, there's a people of God who present a virgin through whom, okay, now God makes her a portal into this, mm -hmm. um, into this dimension. I don't get all of that. I, I'm <laughs> happy to call it a mystery. Yeah. But it, it is a real question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know either. I'm, I'm just asking. <laughs> you know, I, I like to read something um, that Mark Driscoll said before, you know, and I just like your response. So he says, you know, in Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter, you know, with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. You know, that, you know, this is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. You know, so reading your book, that version of Jesus sounds very different from from yours you know but you you know but you're both probably saying that we see God in Jesus so so how do you respond to something like that yeah no okay so listen very carefully i'm going to speak as an orthodox theologian right okay. now not as just Brad Jersack's opinion as an orthodox theologian um i call blasphemy okay that's blasphemy because uh the fact is we did beat up Jesus right not only did we beat him up then we tortured him then we killed him and if he could not worship the God he could beat up, then he's not worshiping the Jesus who was beaten, right. tortured, and crucified. Huh. And, and then that's another Jesus. And, yeah. and so I think, I actually think, you know, uh, Jesus really loves Mark. And I think even yeah. Mark worships Jesus through his own filters. So I'm, sure. I'm not terribly worried about him, but I actually pray for him often, mainly yeah. because I get bitter. Sure. <laughs> uh, that creates atheists. Sure. That, that creates atheists. And yeah. so I pray this for Mark uh, frequently. I, I pray, Lord, yeah. I want you to have the same mercy on him uh, mm. that I want for me. Mm. And I want you to correct him in the way I still need to be corrected too. So I'm very much also sort of see myself and, and Mark both in a real pickle about images of God. But in terms of the idea that he's presenting there, yeah. And you know what? It might have been a moment where he's just trying to do the shock value thing. But right, the idea right. he presented uh, would be f formally, formally heresy. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, have yeah. you ever? Oh, sorry. Were you gonna say something? Nope. Yeah, you know, have you ever heard of uh, Hector Avalos though? Um, that rings a bell, but I can't place it. Yeah. So you know, I've had several guests on my show, and there's a lot of books that I've read where. Okay, we'll talk about God, you know, being misunderstood, you know, because through people's filters and perceptions, so that everyone always talks about Jesus being perfect theology or, you know, the ultimate standard for us to, to follow. You know, but Hector Avalos um, actually came out with a book called The Bad Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, and he says, you know, according to him, you know, many scholars assume that Jesus is divine. So when they read the the biblical text, they don't see the flaws and inconsistencies in in you know, Jesus's character, just like every other human being would have, but just because they kind of had that assumption. It's like the way people read the Bible when they have the inerrancy lens on. Yeah. You know, it's like they don't see that thing. So, you know, it's really interesting because when I started to hear some of his work, you know, he would say, yeah, there are people who don't believe Jesus is God, but they'll say, you know, he's a good moral teacher. But Hector Avalos even challenges that. <laughs> you know, he believes that Jesus isn't even a good moral teacher. So he'll say stuff like, you know, you'll notice in the Bible, it does say, you know, Jesus will say, you know, uh, uh, to hate your parents, you know, but even for me, during my apologetic days, you know, hate doesn't really mean hate. It means to love Jesus more, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's like we kind of do those little twists, you know, or, or Jesus calls a woman a dog, you know, which c- could actually mean bitch or something like that. Or you could even act like a cult leader, you know, who transfers, you know, have you transfer your allegiance to your family from your family to him or or even like, you know, some of my guests on the show will talk about Jesus preaches nonviolence. And then Hector Alos will say, well, he doesn't really preach on violence. He preaches deferred violence. You know, he says, love your enemies now because later I'm going to get them. <laughs> you know, so it's just like it's, it's really interesting on how there are even different perspectives on how, you know, people will even interpret Jesus. Um, just wondering if if there's a possibility that our, our, our presuppositions are, you know, kind of changing the way we perceive and, and, and read the text. You know what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I kind of want to disagree and also agree. And, and I would say this, um, where I would challenge some of his interpretations of what Jesus is doing in the text. Why would I challenge that? Well, because I have presuppositions. Where right. did I get those presuppositions? Ah, I got them um, because of the, the, the clearest revelation that Jesus gives us is, is on the cross. And so what happens is... Mm. When you read back then into, into the Gospels, you, you must read it with the death and resurrection of Jesus as a cipher or mm. uh, informing your presuppositions. Or another way to say it would be this, and I do this especially with, with um, uh, the parables where Jesus will give a parable that presents a king or a master, which we would assume is God, mm. and, and yet he's like torturing people. Yeah. Okay, well, so... Um, how do I read that? Well, what I do is I say, and I got this from Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. He said, not personally in a book, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks said, for clearing that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just my buddy. Um, yeah, no, uh, the Holy Father, as the Catholics say, uh, what he said is that the death and resurre- resurrection of Jesus is the punchline to all of Jesus' teaching, and particularly the parables. Mm. And so, for example, let's say the rich man and Lazarus story. You can't understand it this story of, of an uncrossable chasm that no one can come back from in this deep pit called Hades until you read it through the cipher that Jesus did cross that chasm, mm-hmm. entered Hades, destroyed it from the inside and came back. Yeah. That information forms presuppositions sure. about how I read. 
another one that's more particular to what what, what he, you just uh, cited him as talking about yeah. was his nonviolence. So it's a deferred violence where, okay, I, um, well, it appears to be a deferred violence, but then Jesus dies and he comes back and you're like, okay, the violence is deferred to now. Vengeance is, is here he comes. Oh, wait, he didn't come back and, and mm. wrath us. Right, right. Didn't come back in vengeance. Oh, now that forms a presupposition whereby I have to go back and say, what, what is vengeance is mine, says the Lord mean? Yeah. Well, I thought it meant deferred violence. Hmm. But what it actually meant was vengeance is mine and I'm going to swallow it in, and dissolve it in love or something mm -hmm. like that. So yeah. I have to admit that I do have presuppositions when I'm reading through the four Gospels, but those I think as best I can are informed by the cross event itself. No, cool. I like that response. You know, so so even referring to the cross then, you know, my whole life I believe, you know, Jesus was punished for our sins, you know, at the cross. And even when I was like a couple of years ago when I started like emphasizing on, you know, the grace of God, I would still preach, you know, Jesus was punished on the cross for our sins, you know. So so did God punish Jesus on the cross? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I, I'd love to address that. It's um, um, that kind of idea uh, was formed in the early 1500s by John Kelvin, and it comes out particularly in his in his Institutes of Christian Religion. And it's interesting that the very page that he does that on, where he proposes this, he's already given the historic view of the cross, and it's so beautiful. And I'm like, oh, look, he believed what the ancient fathers believed. It's this beautiful exchange of, of, uh, of Christ giving us his life and him taking our deaths. And there's this exchange and that heals human nature in every way. Um, but then he proceeds to, to bring his own theory. And to do so, he says, setting aside the creeds completely. Hmm. And there it is. He, yeah. He's just abandoned the historic Christian faith. He's uh, on this particular item that he's that the the um, the Apostles' Creed says that when Jesus dies on the cross, he he goes down and he he conquers Hades and he yeah. comes back and he and he's victorious over death and all these the dead are, uh, come to life. Well, Kelvin says no, we're gonna I'm gonna reinterpret that. I'm gonna set aside what the creeds intended and we're gonna basically say no. Christ descent into the Hades was while he was still on the cross and God is punishing him. And he knew that's not what they meant. Right. And now it's very interesting that even some modern reformed or I'd say neo-reformed authors do the same thing. So for example, John Piper rejects the line of the Apostles' Creed that huh. says that Christ descended into Hades. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Mm. <laughs> so uh, so the, the early church for one and a half millennia didn't conceive of this as a punishment of Jesus by the Father. They couldn't partly because they say so in the creeds, but also Paul's quite clear. Uh, God, where is God on Good Friday? Where's the Father? Is he holding a spear? Is he torturing his son? Is he pouring out his wrath? No, Paul says. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. Um, yeah. While where he were is still his enemies. He, so where is God? In Christ. And mm -hmm. so to to divide up the Father and Jesus, again, the, the, then you're, yeah. and, and having one doing one thing and another, another uh, like in terms of a punisher and a victim, that's that's a violation of basic Trinitarian doctrine. That, right, right. That, 
one other verse that's relevant to that, Zechariah 12, it's a prophecy where, it just, where it's Yahweh talking and he says, you will see, you will look on me, the one you've pierced. Mm. So it's like Yahweh saying, if you're looking for God on Good Friday, he's the one on the cross there. Wow. Um, wow. So how that's the father punishing the son, it, it, to me, it's like such a, a bizarre thing. Well, Isaiah 53 prophesied this. He said, you'll look on him and you'll think it, he was stricken by God. Right, and he right. wasn't. He was, right. he's, I mean, it's a prophecy of the error. Right, right. Oh, I, and that's where I thank you for your book because that's the first time I noticed that verse <laughs> because of your, your book, Tricking by God. You know, so, but in what sense, okay, if God the Father didn't punish his own son on the cross, which is what I know a lot of uh, atheists criticize Christians for believing, you know, did Jesus die, quote unquote, for us in any sense? Because, like, that was over 2,000 years ago. So, what relevance does it really have for me today? Because, like, I know a lot of people personally, who, who can live a good and happy life without even thinking about the cross. Yeah. Yeah. I think you've got a few questions there. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, the, uh, so the first, let's, relevance, the relevance to now, that'll be the second question. I think that the first question is like, what's he doing there? Yeah. How, in what sense did he die for us? This is where perhaps um, C.S. Lewis is really helpful because he's reflecting and, and telling us about the... Uh, He's reflecting on something Athanasius wrote called the on the incarnation, and actually, that's where C.S. Lewis got his Lord liar lunatic okay. um, argument from, right. and it was written in the early three hundreds. Um, and so, basically, <clears throat> uh, um, Lewis says, "Look at uh, yes, Jesus died for us. He took a bullet for us, but God wasn't holding the smoking gun." And he shows us this in. In The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, in the Chronicles of Narnia, where um, the witch is demanding uh, the death of, of Edmund, mm. the little boy. And then um, Aslan, who represents Jesus, takes the little boy's place and, so that the witch um, thinks she's going to be able to just like satisfy her wrath. But what happens is that Aslan rises from the dead, and he breaks the stone table. So two things really important here. Yes, uh, there's sort of a legalistic demand for vengeance and violence, but it's not God doing it. It's right. God is not the witch. That's the first right. thing. God is not the witch. And then this idea that, oh, he had to satisfy his wrath. The wrath represent, is represented in that story by the stone table. It didn't satisfy the stone table. He broke it. He shattered it. Right. All right, now... So, so okay, so there is a sense in which Jesus dies for us, but, but the, he's not saving us from God. He's saving us from Satan and sin and death, whatever all that means. Sure. Um, sure. How that would be relevant to me is this. When I look at the cross, I, I get a revelation that, um, that God is forgiveness, radical forgiveness, hmm. and that that radical forgiveness extends to all, including the very people who tortured him while they're torturing him. And if, mm -hmm. that, if, that, if that kind of radical forgiveness is so huge, it, it could actually encompass all humankind. And this is sort of what Paul is trying to tell us. It's like, look at the, the, the forgiveness you see on the cross. That, that's love, and it's big enough for everybody. So that then is relevant to me when I'm feeling um, condemned. It's like, okay. oh, wait. No, his his love extends even to me, um, 
And then the other thing, which was a lot more obvious in the early church, especially in the time of martyrdom, but now it's happening again, like with our, our Coptic brothers and sisters in, in the Middle East and the Syrian Christians, um, that, that it's also a victory over death. And it's like death isn't a thing anymore. It's, mm -hmm. it's not real. It's, uh, you, you're not, you don't perish. You can't. Um, oh, you can be killed. Hmm. You're not dead. Nobody's dead. You, you know, so, so what this did is it created such an incredible fearlessness among the Christians in the face of even death that, mm -hmm. that, that that was actually the most profound thing that drew people to Christianity because they were so terrified of death. And they're like, these guys don't fear it at all. Yeah. Even had those guys, there was, uh, was it 29, 29 um, guys were, they set them on their knees and ISIS beheaded them and they were just doing their ID check before and they said anybody who's not a Christian can go and there's one guy who, who wasn't a Christian, he said, well, you don't need, they said, you don't need to be here, you can just go now. Hmm. And he's like looking at these Christians who are completely unafraid in the face of death and he's like, I think I'll stay here. And he's beheaded with huh. the Christians oh, wow. because he's so dramatically impacted by their lack of fear of death. So I think especially, um, so f the, the existential experience of the, that the love of God is big enough to forgive anything I've done or done to me, and also this utter, utter victory over death that means death isn't a thing. And I grieve because I miss people, but I don't grieve because they're dead. They aren't. Yeah. They simply aren't. Right, right. So, I mean, is it more of like, you know, we talk about the cross just to refer to it as a story that inspires us to forgive or, you know, to, to love. Or is it also like a metaphysical thing? Like when I was growing up, I was taught all my every person's sin was put on Jesus Christ 2000 years ago. You know, like I, I think you even mentioned it in your in your book, like it was like a backpack, you know, as an example and stricken by God, if you remember. You know, so it's more of like this metaphysical kind of thing, like all of our sins were put on one man. Or is it just a story that we refer to, to to inspire us to live today? Oh, that's a that's a good way of framing it, Josh. I, um, I would say that, that it's two things and it addresses both. So one, okay. I usually call it a revelation. Okay. Um, and that, that aspect is about the inspirational side of it. It's more okay. than just inspiration, but like a, a, li a life-changing truth. It actually has an impact on me. Sure. So, so as a revelation, I'm, I'm doing revelation is like an inspiration time with a transformative edge. Hmm. Um, and then second, that it's a decisive act. And that's where it's, you're calling it metaphysical or we could call it ontological. Sure. A, a decisive act. So if I, even with, you know, I was with Brian Zond at a, arcade fire concert and these two kind of hippies sat neck on my left and they're like what do you what are you doing here man you know and they're kind of because <laughs> they knew they i said oh i'm canadian and fire is canadian and oh cool and, and i said i'm going to be preaching at this guy's church tomorrow and they're like oh what are you preaching on and and you know they're not churchgoers i'm like on what the cross means and like huh. wow what's the cross mean and i said oh that's a good question mm. <laughs> i think it it it's a I, I, I said it shows us something about God. That's the revelation. Yeah. What does it show us? That he that that he that he's a self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering lover. And they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but I just it was easy to break it down, right? So here's the revelation side. He shows us that God God's not like greedy. He's not just this egotist in the sky. He's not a wrather waiting to pound people. He just gives himself away in love. He's just love. Yeah. 
poured out like a waterfall. And they're like, oh, cool, man. <laughs> radically forgiving. There's like nobody, nobody's outside of his love and forgiveness. And anything we've ever done, he's like, he gets it. He gets it. And he's okay. He loves you. Oh, cool. And then, and then I said, and he's co-suffering. And they, uh, they're like, what does that mean? And I said, well, you know, solidarity. Hmm. Oh, and they totally got it, right? The mm. whole social justice thing. Right, so that, yeah. that's the revelation. But there is something ontological or metaphysical, and that's what I'll talk about it being a, a, decisive, a decisive act whereby um, uh, he, he overcomes um, uh, Satan, sin, and death. And, uh, right, whatever, I whatever that means. <laughs> whatever that means. But certainly he overcomes, yeah, because Satan is this whole system of accusation and scapegoating and all. I'm kind of Girardian on that stuff. Sure. Um, but but he overcomes he overcomes sin through mercy instead of punishment, yeah. For all, and he overcomes uh, death um, that instead of perishing, it's a doorway to the the next life for for all. Right, right. So you know, like earlier this week or last week, actually, you know, we were actually um, I met up with a friend and my wife, and we were actually talking about people who suffer, have suffered a lot growing up, and people who have been abused you know and so when i hear a lot of these explanations about god revealing himself coming as a human being in jesus that supposedly jesus can identify and understand us you know yep. but then what comes to mind is you know to what degree does does jesus really understand human beings just because he became a human because what about marriage what about those who have been divorced or molested or raped you know and they say you can't truly understand someone or something unless you've experienced it, you know. So how how can Jesus, uh, you know, just because he became a human being, identify with those people in those circumstances? Yeah, I've thought about that question a lot. Uh, maybe yeah. you, maybe one way to see it is instead of thinking of it, as, did he experience every single kind of evil, mm. like particular evil? No, he didn't. Okay. Um, did he? Well. Hang on, I'll come back to that though. Okay, that's <laughs> all good. But did he experience the full range? So full range now is a spectrum, right? Right, right. Did he f experience the full range of the human experience and to what depths? Did, so, okay, so he didn't experience marriage, but he went, he, he experienced depths where the most extreme trials of a marriage go to. Um, sure. And so for him, the depths and the range that he experienced included torture which uh if i had to guess included sexual assault knowing how torturous soldiers are in a barbaric culture huh. but you never know right right but, but certainly he experienced torture but it's more than that uh, i think the cry of dereliction where he says my god my god why have you forsaken me the truth is god hadn't forsaken him in the sense that he's turned his back and poured out his wrath but in the, in the sense that, oh, I'm going to die. <laughs> mm. I'm not coming off the cross. In fact, I can't call 10,000 angels. And he experiences the despair of that to overcome despair. So what, and what I mean by that is when I, when I say that, I'm thinking of the person who, who so despairs that they kill themselves. Mm. He's experienced that. He, he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. And then on the cross, it's like he despairs so that he can identify with the despairing. Hmm. And um, 
And I, I, the reason I say stuff like that is like um, some of the early church fathers, like Irenaeus and Gregory of Nazianzus, they, they would say yeah. this, what, what Christ has not assumed has not been healed. And therefore, right. he assumed it all. Right. So, the, so, well, all, every particular kind of suffering, like a skateboard accident? No. <laughs> <laughs> but the full range and the deepest depths of the abyss of what we experience. He's gone there, found us, and, uh, and come back. Wow. Yeah, so let's talk about, like, the, the nature of God. Like, I'll bring up some questions that I've had from people, especially, okay. like, some philosophers, you know. So, so some of them will even say, you know, isn't it? Because you're talking about, like, the love of God. Right? Yeah. and the nonviolence of God, and so I mean, isn't it arrogant for us to talk about the quote unquote nature of God? Like, who who are we to talk about the nature of God? <laughs> we are small minded people. <laughs> um, what I've I've been working on this the last few days, and just this idea of holding intention mm. um, on the one hand, a humility of of agnosticism, right. Agnosticism doesn't mean I'm antagonistic to faith. It just means right. I don't know, right? right. So, and there's a whole, there, there's a whole uh, tr faith or a stream of Christian theology that we call apophatic theology, and it just right. means negative, negative theology. theology. It means what we don't know. So it's like you would say, okay, God is God is a father. Well, yeah, but he's also not a father. And how is he not a father? God is a king, but he's also not a king. How is he not a king? And and what you're doing is you're dismantling conceptions of God that you build, which become boxes that hold him in. Right. And now Meister Eckhart, he was a German mystic. He once cried out. He said, oh, God, save me from God. Uh, yeah. And what he meant was like, I know there's a God out there and he's much, he, he's beyond, he's beyond everything I call God. My, what I call God is very small. So that's the one hand, the humility of sort of apophatic or agnostic. Um, yeah. um, you know, it's a humility that says no to the arrogance of I, I've got God in my, you know, box or I can get my head around him somehow. Sure. Um, in, in, in tandem with that or in tension with that, we would say, um, and again, it's a faith statement that God actually has revealed himself so that you you can know God um, even though you don't know God. Well, how can you know God? Well, because he's come in the flesh. And and so in 1 John 1, you'll get John saying, look, at we, we saw him. We, this one who dwells in inapproachable glory, actually he showed up and we touched him. We could smell him. We could talk to him you could take a selfie with him you know <laughs> very and we fellowshiped with him and so can you now and so so there's the positive theology of the incarnation alongside this this uh negative theology of, of agnostic humility right right so i mean so we have this agnostic humility where um we're not 100 percent sure this is the way god is like but this is how we understand him right but like in your understanding is is god free to do whatever he pleases, you know, even if, even if things would look evil in our eyes. Yeah. These are, com there's two competing images of, of God <clears throat> um, that, that you can track back through history, theology, and even right into the Bible. And I would, mm. I would say one is um, where God is pure will and the other where God is infinite love. Mm. Um, 
Now, the, the God of pure will, that idea is, is you were sort of describing it there. It's very reformed. It's like, right. it, it's uh, God can do whatever the hell he wants to do, and right. that makes it good. If God commands you to rape somebody, then it's good because he said so, you know? Yeah. So there's no, it's beyond, it's a God beyond good and evil, almost like it's a Nietzsche God. Yeah. It is a Nietzsche God. Uh, um, that, that, um, so, now, the way you framed it was that he's free, and, yeah. and I think that's exactly right. People have taken that word free, but then they, what they've done is that they, they, they've made that a euphemism for right. pure will. Right, right. It's pure will. And um, whereas, in, in fact, the original, some of the guys who, and we call this a voluntaristic God. Vol right. it does, it's like he, he's, uh, he's driven by this will. Mm. And that they would even talk about it in terms of freedom, but where it was coming from was he was free to forgive right, right. <laughs> from Hosea and, and so on. It's like, I'm completely free to forgive. But then they'd say, well, yeah, but he's also free to smite. He's free to, <laughs> he's free to do genocide and all that. So that's mm -hmm. one, one way of seeing God. And then the other way we would call uh, infinite love or pure good. Hmm. And that, um, and, and that God only can, he, that God is limited to the, his nature he can't will what he is not. And if he's love, he can only will love. Right. If he's good, he can only will good. And he's not free to be other than God. To, right. to go do evil would not to be God, be God anymore. And, and so it's either pure will or pure right. goodness. Right. And the weird thing is both are in the Bible. But when Jesus shows up, he, and, and especially on the cross, he shows it's, it, that it's um, pure good and pure, pure love. Good. Right, Which right. is, you see it in First John, too. It's sure. like, here's how we know God is love. God is love. There it is. That's the right. final word. That's the most theology, most mature theology in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. You know, so everything that he does is, is good. You know, not necessarily everything that, I mean, because believe it or not, there, there is a lot of people that do justify all those, you know, horrendous things that are in the Old Testament. Say, God can do whatever he wants because he's God. He's the author of life. He can take it, yeah. you know, and God is in control, you know, so... Just kind of using that language, you know, mm -hmm. according to people, they think God is in control. Then I know a lot of people would question and say, but why is there so much chaos in the world? You know, or, or if God is such a loving father, as we like to believe, then why is there so much suffering? Right. Yeah. Let, let's start with the question, why is he in control? I mean, and this was uh, to villainize John Kelvin a little more. <laughs> God governs every act. God governs every evil. Nay, he commands it. I'm wow. like, that's evil. And wow. so John Wesley comes along. He says, the God of Kelvin's worse than the devil. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, um, uh, um, but, the, but then if he were in control, let it, go with that as a premise for a moment. If he sure. does control, by the way, that's not love. Right. But if he does control, he's not good at it. Right. right. No. If he's into controlling the world, he, he should do yeah. he should do it a lot more. Yeah. If he's about wrath, I've got a list for him. Right, right. <laughs> oh if he if he's the god of you know, the, the god of, of control who who pours out his wrath on sinners and then like then where was he in World War Two? Mm. Where is he with ISIS? Where is he with the little girls who will be raped today? Why isn't, you know, so I think we, that's where we need to almost <laughs> join with like the, uh, you know, very deconstructive and the, the atheist objections right. on that side and say, whatever he is, he can't be controlled because he's not. He's this not. Is, we live in chaos. Yeah. What, 
then there's a second possibility, and it, it's it's messy, and I don't like it, but it seems real to me. And mm. so you have to start with the the reality: there is evil in our world. How could a God who's love create conditions where that's possible? Yeah. And uh, I think that I've already answered the question there: that love doesn't control; love consents. Yeah. To, and here's how we say it in philo- philosophically: love consents to authentic otherness. Right. So with you and your wife, for example, for you to love her, you can't control her. You have to, you make the conditions for real love by consenting to her free will. Yeah. Um, uh, we don't like that because people can abuse free will and they can abuse it to abuse others and they do all the time. Mm-hmm. But then what's the option? What, 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 do, what would you expect God to do? Strap right. us down in gurneys until we right. submit? Well, that's not even submission, is it? So right. he, does, he does this very messy, long play. And that is mm. that I, I'm, going, I'm going to consent to your authentic otherness to create the conditions for real love. And here's the gamble, that the conditions for real love will even overcome all the abuse of that free will. In, uh, but that means like that—that's a long game. Yeah. The other is that he he consents to the authentic otherness of natural law. He's not going around sending earthquakes and tsunamis and lightning strikes. Mm-hmm. If he does, he's he's a very poor aim. <laughs> right, um, right. But but he allows for the free play of, of nature. Also, to because that's what created the conditions for life on our yeah. planet. You have to have, you have to have tectonic plates floating, or we'd all die in lava. Yeah. But if they float, they rub, and if they rub, they make earthquakes, and if they yeah. make earthquakes, they make tsunamis, and people mm-hmm. die. And it's like, oh, but what you know? Again, what do we want? That he'd levitate people around? It wouldn't yeah. work. Yeah. You know. So I mean, does it kind of like the analogy of of the father? Because I even brought this to Paul Young, you know, the mm-hmm. other day when I was interviewing him about, because, you know, he was even talking about uh, his abuse that he experienced yeah. while he was growing up. And, you know, so he was even giving an example about how, you know, he would do, you know, he would stop his son from doing anything to his grandchild, you know, which which is what I get, you know, because like if, if you know, if I had the power to, uh, you know, get in front of a child who's about to get hit by a car, you know, I probably can't stop the driver, but I'll, I'll push the kid out of the way or something like that. So I have the power to do that. But then, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of these kind of analogies too of people saying, you know, I now I know how God loves me because now I'm a dad. I would do everything I would for a child. But then it doesn't seem like God intervenes the way we intervene as human beings, you know, because kind of like if you're talking about this consent thing, um, Paul Young was talking about how kind of like we have this value or I don't know if you use that word, but it's just that kind of like the idea that God gives us the freedom to choose, you know. But doesn't that kind of like break down the the analogy of, of like us, you know, the Father God is like the love that we have for our own child and how we would intervene in a situation instead of just saying like we were even talking about this with my wife last night. Like so if God respects our freedom or gives us enough value to let us have our way, does God really value the, the rapist or the murderer to say, just say okay i can't violate your will because i love you yeah i i think you're really on to something and and the way you said it um creates a idea in my mind and so um the first of all 
um, you talked about him intervening. He he doesn't intervene like we would as a father who sees yeah. a child be. And I and I'm thinking actually maybe that's exactly what he does. In other words, we expect him to intervene magically. Yeah. But we don't intervene magically. Mm-hmm. We actually have to get into the situation. Right. And do something about it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, um, so so sometimes we accuse God of, of he just allows stuff and why doesn't he intervene? But the way we're imagining him intervening would be terribly magical where he hovers around the world and he just kind of handcuffs rapists at the last moment and yeah. then, or something like right, that. Right, right. Like, well, we don't do that. Right, right. Um, but maybe he does intervene exactly like we do as parents on two levels. One is... Uh, he entered the situation in a decisive way uh, through the incarnation. Okay. But also now, like that doesn't appear to help us right now. But right. It kind right. of can in, in this way. He intervenes by uh, how, how he always has. Uh, intervenes isn't even a, a good word. It, right, I think it's right. too magical. He participates right. through willing human partners. In other words, how does he protect the little girl through her dad? Right. <laughs> you right. know, how does he protect the? How does he pr- protect the world from poverty through people who share? How does he protect the world from from war? Well, through peacemakers. Here's the problem: we don't want to partner with him. He's right. he's he's actually created us to be his image in the world. His um, that, that uh, so Bishop Desmond Tutu put it this way, mm-hmm. Forever, for whatever reason, since mankind showed up on the scene, God does nothing in the world without a willing human partner. Right. And I think you've kind of triggered it, me here to think this way, that God does show up on the scene and, and intervenes people. exactly the way we do because right. he only does it through us because that's our job. We yeah. actually mediate the love of God into the material realm. Right, right. I'm glad you brought that Desmond Tutu quote. I was about to ask you that, you know, because even for my own observation of just the world, you know, and, and some of the questions that I've had had to do with suffering a lot. Yes. You know, just observing, like, it just doesn't, I don't buy a lot of the answers that, that a lot of uh, ministers have given. Even last night, I got a message from someone saying, you know, they just, it's hard for them to swallow that God loves and protects especially because you know they know these orphans who are getting raped like every single day yeah you know and so it's like hard to believe especially if god we, we you know we, we share this god who's like um a god who who protects and intervenes it 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 doesn't usually involve the language of you know us human beings being involved but you know they they think of like a supernatural god yeah who could like you know stop a gun from you know shooting the you know the trigger gets stuck you know or yeah, something like yeah, that yeah. and so that magical. that's yeah <laughs> the magical time and that's kind of like the the understanding i think a lot of people have where i'm more kind of like what you're talking about it's like it's us human beings you know because people even ask me you know why why go to the philippines you know like or or even people who ask me for prayer for healing which is really interesting because people literally beg me for healing Mm-hmm. You know, and, and like long messages, they even offered to pay me money, you yeah. know, and I don't I don't take it. But it's so interesting because they even say stuff like, Josh, I believe God, you know, God loves me so much. And it's his finished work on the cross by his stripes. I'm healed. Uh, can you heal me? And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, 
you know, Christians teach that God is a relational God who's with you. He's omnipresent. And, you know, we kind of have this access to God. But if God loves you and you have direct access to him, why doesn't he just heal you? Why are you why are you begging me mm. to heal you if we both believe in God? Mm. You know, so that's kind of the things that have gotten me to um, kind of see that perspective of the involvement of human beings when I started to do healing more. Because, yeah. you know, and even for me, myself growing up, going from healing conference, healing conference, you know, like, well, if it's the same God <laughs> who loves me, yeah. you know, why am I going to all these quote unquote anointed guys to, to touch my body, to heal me, right. you know? So there must be something about human beings that we play like a, a huge role in, in, I guess you wouldn't want to say like the acts of God, so to speak, you know? It, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's really true. I, it, it's sort of like this, um, God won't act without a human partner, but on the other hand, when you, when he has a human partner, that human partner has a divine partner. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's not just you, but yeah. what's happened is, and I don't even think when you heal someone, it's it's not you doing magic now. Right. It's you are mediating the love of the, the what's supernatural is the love. Yeah. And you've you've so emptied yourself of uh, uh, to make space to consent. Yeah for that love to fill you that now when you go pray for somebody or you heal somebody or however you, you know your approach is um, um i could be wrong but I, I think the active ingredient is actually you know this that you're mediating supernatural love yeah and that yeah. that's not a violation of 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 natural law it's the highest natural law yeah yeah it's, no i like that i agree with that you know um you know, so, I mean, just as we're coming to a close, you know, what would you call, you know, the beautiful gospel? And can you share a little bit about the gospel in the chairs thing that you do? Okay. So there's a guy named Anthony Carbo. He's a he's an Orthodox priest in Colorado Springs. And he, he created a, a little, um, a, an illustration of how uh, contrasting two ways of seeing the gospel. Now, the way, the way that you and I saw the gospel, it was sort of like... Um, You'd have these two chairs, they start facing each other, like Adam and Eve in the garden, they're in fellowship with God. But then uh, in his illustration, that first version of the gospel, every time we turn from God, he turns away from us. Hmm. And it's because he, we were taught that he's too holy and righteous and just to look on sin, and so he has to turn away from sin. But if you repent, so now you turn the chair back towards him, hmm. if you repent, he turns back towards you. Hmm which is very odd because now salvation's completely in my hands. It's <laughs> yeah. like if I believe the right thing, do the right thing, repent the right way, he'll turn towards me. And if I don't, he won't. Yeah. And that then even the gospel, the way we taught the, the cross was, well, on the cross, God turned away from his son and, and then his son experiences all the hell we deserved. Mm. But, but then he comes back and, and, and God raises him. And now we have to believe that and turn to him. And if we don't, they <laughs> stay turned away from us and we go to hell forever. Yeah. Um, the second version, um, uh, I think, is much more beautiful. And, that, and, and it, it's, it's really actually just the story, the whole story of the Bible and especially <laughs> the Gospels where we keep turning away from God and he keeps pursuing us. Um, mm. And this isn't just a, a New Testament phenomena. It's like when Adam and Eve sin, God pursues them. When Cain kills Abel, God pursues Abel. When um, Abraham screws up with Hagar, God still honors his covenant to Abraham. He's turned towards him. When Moses gets it in his idea to save the people through murder, 
Um, and he ends up in the wilderness. God pursues him to the wilderness as the burning bush. And same with David when he's like, he's going to have this great dynasty and then he sleeps with Bathsheba and God pursues him still and he still honors the, that covenant even through Bathsheba's son Solomon. Hmm. Well, you finally get to the Gospels and you see this too. If God's too holy and righteous to look on sin, I guess we don't think <laughs> Jesus was God in right, flesh. Right. He's with sinners all the time. And yeah. you've got the... Um, the woman at the well, and he comes to her. You've got the the woman caught in adultery, and he crouches with her and defends her. And you've mm-hmm. got demonized people and paralyzed people, and just all the people that religion thought were cursed by God. Jesus shows us the very opposite. He's always towards them. He's always for them. He always loves them. Mm-hmm. And, it, and and that even um, then on the cross, when we kill him. He still forgives us and he still pursues us. And so I think that it's so beautiful now because that's true of everybody who's listening. No matter what they've done, God is still for them. He's towards them. He's in um, in pursuit of them. The hound of heaven, um, surely goodness and mercy will chase me all the days of my life. Wow. That is a beautiful message, man. <laughs> you know, so... Sign so what, me up. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So what's next for you? Um... Two things. Well, one is right now we're I'm doing a, a children's book that's a spin-off of this one. We'll probably oh, okay. call it something like God is Just Like Jesus. Oh, nice. And I've got this amazing artist, Sherry Ann Viss, and she's working on a series of uh, its icons in this in the um, in the Coptic style, which is very kid friendly. Wow. Big eyes, almost like <laughs> anime. Strong lines, bright colors, and it's just the different. Uh, stories of of Jesus in the Gospels, but but in each case, the text part that I'm going to write is about how Jesus is showing us what God is like every time. So Jesus nice. Jesus is feeding hungry people. That means God loves hungry people and He wants us <laughs> to feed them. Or He's right. healing someone. That means God's a healer. So it's all about Him showing us God. Hmm. And then um, and then I I've been asked I have a, a contract to do a novel which terrifies me because I've never done that before. Oh, nice. I, I could be terrible at it. So <laughs> we'll just leave that for now. And we'll see how it goes in the coming years. Oh, no, that's all good, man. What, what is that kid's version going to be coming out? Uh, I don't know. We had aimed for Christmas, but I don't think it's going to get done. Okay. Sherry Ann went and had another baby. So that oh, wow, okay. I said, I am, I am willing to wait for this. We, she's that. Oh, no, it's all good. So probably uh, spring at the latest. Okay. But I would like to read a novel of yours. That would seem pretty cool. <laughs> Never seen that style from you. So that'll yeah, be cool. Yeah, it could be fun. Could be. <laughs> so, so how can my listeners keep in touch with you? Well, we have uh, we have a website, bradjersak.com, Okay. But I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. YouTube also. YouTube also, and okay. um, let's see. Um, I do I do blog at both okay. clarionjournal.com. Clarion okay. And at at, at um, something called uh, let's see Christianity Christianity without the religion blog okay. and but they. Uh, you know, I post the links to that on Twitter and on okay. Facebook every time I write something. Okay. Is that with Greg? Greg Albert? Yeah, Greg is this okay. Christianity Without Religion one. Yeah. So oh, okay. he's got me. I, I started the blog version of the magazine. Oh, okay. And then we also have a magazine that people can get. Yeah. I met up with Greg like two years ago or something. He said a lot of good things about you. Oh, he's so, a yeah. nice Yeah, he is yeah. a nice guy. 
<laughs> so you could, they could visit us at ptm.org as well. That's where um, that's PTM. where we Greg and I do a lot of stuff with the magazine and okay. with we have a we're started now a CWR uh, video blog as well. So all of nice. the portals for that are through ptm.org. Okay, alrighty guys. So be sure to check out Brad's latest book, A More Christlike God, and of course his other books, which are still really good. And if you like to support the show financially, uh, that would really mean a lot. You can go to patreon.com slash Joshua Tungle. That's www.patreon.com slash Joshua Tungle. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and uh, write a review and rate it because it's going to help us reach a wider audience. And it'll allow us to help more people along their journey. And plus, it encourages me too because I read every single one of them. And of course, please share this podcast with your friends. And so, Brad, it's been a pleasure, man. You know, thanks for answering these tough questions. You know, and so I, I appreciate your heart and the work you're doing. So thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. I, I suppose I responded rather than answered, right? Oh, no, it was <laughs> I, I, I liked it, man. I mean, those are the kind of answers I think are, are good, you know. And so thank you so much. And so, alrighty, guys, once again, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you guys on the flip side. All right, I'm out. Peace. Peace.